You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from National Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-hosts and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Beanie from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. Hey, guys. Good to talk to you today. I know. How's it going? So, Susan, tell us, you had a fun outing last night. You went to see... I got to go see Pretty Woman the Musical. And for those of you watching on YouTube, you can see my sweatshirt. (laughs) It was cute. Man, you were all in. You bought the sweatshirt and everything. Yeah, we have season passes to our um, theater in San Antonio. And I never, ever, ever buy the stuff. And (laughs) halfway through, I was like, I got to get stuff here. It was was so fun. They did such a great job at adapting the movie to the stage. And the the actors were amazing. The songs were good. And they kept enough of it that you felt... You, you knew what was going to happen. Like, you yeah. know, it was just... It, it made you feel good inside. It's that pretty woman vibe, you know? And oh, yeah, that's cool. I was, I was very impressed at how they did it. So the music, was it... Were there songs that you'd heard before? Were those new songs or... Um, so there were some... So, of course, they had the Pretty Woman song at the end. Yeah. Uh, the Roy Orbison song. The Roy song. Orbison Pretty Woman yeah. song. Yeah. And there were a couple of songs that um, Edward, um, you know, the 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 rich, good-looking guy, that he sang that were, they were songs from just, they were songs that they took and put into the musical. And then there were uh-huh. some original lyric songs as well. Oh, cool. Uh, so, but it was it was it was really good. I I appreciated. I don't like it when I go to musicals and um, I can't understand what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. And this was one of the best musicals I've seen and heard in a long time. Like you could literally understand what they were singing about. My husband is deaf in one ear, so he goes nuts when <laughs> it's like the music is louder than the words. Yeah. <laughs> He he doesn't <laughs> like it when the music's louder than the words and he doesn't know what's going on. And he really enjoyed it. It was, it was, it was just a fun event. And the scene, my favorite, favorite scene was how they recreated when they went to the opera uh-huh. and they were sitting there and it was they they actually have opera singers in their cast. Wow. And so they had Edward singing about Vivian. And then they had the opera going on and it was kind of a little bit of back and forth. It was just, oh, it was everything you should experience in the theater. Oh, you fired me up, Susan. I want to go see Pretty Woman, even though I'm not a big musical theater person, but. I I mean, it (laughs) it really was 
Uh, I mean, the last time I saw a musical that I was impressed was Dear Evan Hansen. That one mm-hmm. was 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 really good. This one just as good, and I I can't recommend it highly enough. I had a I had a great time. That's awesome. Jersey Boys is my all time favorite. That's the one I like. That's the one I would definitely see again. It was awesome. That's a good one. Carrie, do you like musicals? Oh, I love them. I did a lot of musical theater when I was a kid. So, um, what's your fave? So yeah. yeah, what's your fave? Um, so recently, Hamilton's top of the list um, because it, just like you were saying about how how having really crisp uh, enunciation and lyrics and all of you that, you can understand. Yeah, it was one of the few because I knew nothing about it going into it, and and it was just so clean all the way through. And the lyrics are really clever and the the plays on words. I mean, it's just such a it's such a clean musical. I I really like that one. I have not seen a whole lot um musical wise in the last couple of years, just because Vegas has a ton of shows, but there's oh, really yeah, that's one true. <laughs> there's one theater in town where big where musical theater will go and there's really not a whole lot beyond that. So like we saw Matilda this summer, but oh yeah, I've seen Matilda. That was cute. That was really cute. Yeah. So so yeah, but I Hamilton is my current favorite. Cool. Very cool. All right. So today we're going to do a question episode, and we've got lots of questions on recurrent pregnancy loss. So Susan, you want to start us off with the first one? I will. I will. Okay. Our first one is: Hi, my husband and I have been trying to conceive for a year. My question isn't directly related to our troubles, but something I've been curious about. Can you please explain chemical pregnancies? Are they common and what exactly is it? I only know one person that has experienced one, but on different forms, they seem to be more common and some couples have had more than one chemical pregnancy. I appreciate any response and really enjoy your podcast. Thank you so much. So biochemical pregnancies are pregnancies that have formed but never make it to the point where you can see them. So egg and sperm have come together, made the embryo, HCG is being produced. And so that's why for a chemical pregnancy, you can get a positive pregnancy test. But what happens is that when it travels down to the uterus to start to implant, that process either doesn't happen or it does, but it's not, it's not super secure. So normally we can see something in the uterus by about five and a half weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And in a chemical pregnancy, you never really get that far and the levels go up and then they just start coming down and you get what ends up being a really heavy period. And so that's that's what we're referring to with a chemical pregnancy. That's a little different than a miscarriage where typically a miscarriage, we have seen something in the uterus and, and have that kind of confirmation. A biochemical pregnancy, usually your HCG levels maybe go somewhere 40, 50. Sometimes they can be as low as 13. Sometimes they can go up into the hundreds and then they just work their way back down. And every now and then too, um, they can go up and you, it, you're you kind of in limbo. You don't really, they're going up, but you can't see anything in the uterus. And then it can be really confusing. But But we do think that biochemical pregnancies are extremely common. In fact, so common that when we look at the definition of recurrent pregnancy loss, um, the American College of OBGYN doesn't even recommend that you do a workup for recurrent pregnancy loss if someone's had um, less than two or biochemical pregnancies, basically, because we think many women get pregnant and lose a pregnancy really early before they even miss their period. And therefore, there's probably a lot more biochemical pregnancies are probably a lot more common and a lot more kind of normal than we really think. Part of the the reason that fertility patients in particular pick them up a lot is because 
they're just watching so much more closely. Mm-hmm. Or for another woman who just thinks, oh, I'm stressed, my period's a couple days late. For a woman who's actively trying to get pregnant, she may have already taken a pregnancy test in that time and caught it and then caught it on the way down as well, where where someone else who's not trying to get pregnant thinks, oh, you know, I'm busy, I'm stressed. That's why I've been around a bunch of a bunch of other women. All my sisters were in town, so my cycle synced with theirs, so it's off. Or they just aren't paying attention and they miss it. Um, and so, so we see it quite a bit in fertility patients because they're actively looking for it. So just to kind of go off something Abby said a few moments ago about, um, you know, testing for recurrent pregnancy loss that we usually do that after two miscarriages. Um, the definition of recurrent pregnancy loss has changed over the years. So it definitely in Abby's career and in my early career, recurrent pregnancy loss was at least three miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they even said they had to be clinically recognized miscarriages. So we had to have seen something on ultrasound. Whereas that definition has changed a humongous amount and that now it's two miscarriages. And if you look strictly at all the new definitions, it it, it just says a, a pregnancy loss. It doesn't say biochemical or anything like that. Because I'm sure you guys have seen um, definite things that you've seen pathology-wise. I can think of numerous people that have had chromosome translocations and the way they've picked it up is on biochemical pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Insurance is not always user-friendly about covering that. That's probably the single biggest area of patients coming back and saying, we don't, they're not covering the lab tests. Um, But but it's something that really helpful to have done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's get to our next one. Um, let's see. This one is, let's, uh, <laughs> um, let's see. I want to um, talk about that. I have had some um, no health changes in my history, um, but my AMH has been dropping. She's had a miscarriage at six weeks and a DNC technically at eight weeks for a twin pregnancy. Um, Testing showed trisomy 16. Um, And they, she wanted to know, is there any effects from AMH um, for in the context of miscarriage? So a miscarriage by itself shouldn't really impact the AMH a whole heck of a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think that AMH is fairly independent of where you are in your cycle. Um, and so it's not like FSH where there are big differences between day three and day 20, for example. AMH should be mostly pretty consistent. Now, AMHs can decrease over time just due to the natural depletion of eggs. AMHs can be different from one lab test to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're never going to be exactly the same. I mean, if you took the same AMH once a week for a month, there's going to be a range of which those AMHs are. So if you're talking about a decrease of 1.6 to 1.4 to 1.2. I don't know that I would think a whole heck of a lot about that. If you're talking about six down to two down to 0.4, that's that's more of a marked decrease that that we're going to pay more clinical attention to because the others can be just variation. Yeah, and AMH really more speaks to the number of eggs that you have. It doesn't speak so much to the quality. We think the quality, the genetic component of your eggs is more related to um, the the quality, like so. In other words, as women get older beyond age thirty five, we know that they have a much higher risk every year going forward of having a baby that's genetically abnormal. And that really, we worry more about that causing miscarriages than we do about the egg quantity, the egg number. 
Absolutely. But we do see in people who we have concerns about that egg quality, whether it's age, elevated FSH levels, especially. There's all there is some crossover between FSH and AMH on quality and quantity. Um, but we we have seen people that really their first sign of diminished ovarian reserve is recurrent pregnancy loss as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Our next one. I've had three losses, two chemical. And the last one I thought was 11 weeks, but measured small. Embryo at seven weeks, sac at eight weeks. I had an ultrasound at six and five with a strong heartbeat. Did not do genetic testing on the embryo. I did, however, get an NIPT testing at nine weeks. Is the NIPT result accurate since the baby only made it to seven weeks? Results showed a chromosomally normal girl with 9% fetal fraction. If the results are accurate, is there anything that PGTA testing would discover that isn't tested for with NIPT? In other words, was this embryo, quote, normal? Um, she's 34, all RPL testing normal except an elevated ANA, no symptoms of autoimmune and follow-up panels are normal. Plan to use aspirin progesterone for next pregnancy. Is the ANA a concern? Anything you would suggest? That is a good question for which I don't know that I have an answer, but the NIPT, and correct me if I'm wrong, only looks at a few chromosomes, right? Right. So chances are, if it said you have a normal girl, what it really meant was the chromosomes that it tested for didn't usually, and I would, I think those are 16, 18, and 21, I believe, on the NIPT. So what that also means is there's a bunch of other chromosomes that weren't tested for. And certainly if you do IVF, we can test the embryos. And when we test the embryos genetically, we test for all 23 pairs of chromosomes. So I would argue that that would probably be a more thorough test of the embryo. It's, it's not 100%, but if we tell you we're going to transfer a, a normal embryo, we're 98 to 99% certain about that. So I do think that that would be a better test than, you know, than an NIPT. But I think it's good to know that, you know, that it was a normal normal or female and that those those three chromosomes, which are more common ones to be abnormal, were not abnormal. So typically in NIPT, um, I think it's usually 13, 18, and 21, as well as X and Y. And okay. part of the reason that it's that particular set of chromosomes is because those are the ones that can most commonly be abnormal but still result in a live birth, but that child is affected. And so they're not looking at all of the all of the possibilities. And there's there's two ways that that plays out. One is that they're only looking at those five chromosomes in particular, and there are 23 pairs altogether. And so that leaves a lot of room for abnormality because there are certainly other chromosomes that can be affected that can get a child to six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 weeks that are, will still not continue on and will still result in a miscarriage. The other thing that PGT can pick up that NIPT usually is not going to pick up is not only is it going to look at the whole chromosome, it's going to look at uh, certain duplications and deletions. Now, what I mean by that is a chunk of the chromosome that gets knocked out or duplicated that shouldn't. It's not going to look at the teeny, teeny, tiny duplications and deletions. It is not built for that, but it can pick up the bigger ones and it can also pick up mosaicism. And mosaicism is when you take you take a group of cells to test and they're a little bit different from one cell to the other. Instead of all of them coming back missing the same chromosome, maybe half of them coming back missing that particular chromosome. So it gives you a little bit more insight as to what's going on with the number of chromosomes and how they're structured. Um, and are they are they working well for what you want or not? Absolutely. 
And then you had also commented about the ANA. ANA is very nonspecific. There's really no ties towards recurrent pregnancy loss and just a positive ANA. Lots of people have positive ANAs and everything else is completely normal. And if you've had a complete rheumatologic evaluation, which it sounds like you have based on this positive ANA, I, I wouldn't think that this is likely something related to your um, miscarriages. Yeah, one other thing I was going to add in too, you know, because you've had two biochemical losses and then the one miscarriage. I mean, you we're talking IVF and you may be thinking, gosh, I'm not I'm not ready to do IVF. You know, one of the things that you could do if you try and get pregnant again, say you get to the point where you have a fetus, um, but, you know, it doesn't have cardiac activity or, or they can't see any cardiac activity. Ultimately, if you have a DNC or even if you have a miscarriage at home, there's a kit available that you can collect that tissue that tissue can be sent off and you can get more specific information about, you know, whether any one of the 40, you know, 23 pairs of chromosomes were abnormal. And that, that may compel you, you know, if you had another miscarriage or two and you knew for sure that those were genetically abnormal embryos, at that point, that may compel you to think about, well, maybe I do want to do IVF at this point. Yeah. All right. Our next one. Hi, guys. First of all, thank you for providing fertility information. It's helped me so much following my second miscarriage. And you guys are funny, which I enjoy, which I think that's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, yay. My, yay. My question is regarding, regarding hypothyroidism in pregnancy. I am currently 29 years old and have a healthy one and a half year old with no problems during that pregnancy. Labor went great as well. In March, we found out we were pregnant again, had zero symptoms of pregnancy, which is odd, and didn't have a scheduled ultrasound until week 12. I started bleeding and ended up naturally miscarrying at a week 11. Um, a couple months later, I found out I was pregnant for the third time, had a healthy eight-week ultrasound with a heartbeat and all the symptoms. I found out my 12-week appointment, the baby stopped growing shortly after eight weeks. I had a DNC a few days later. I went on to get blood tests after my second loss and it showed that my TSH levels were high, 5.2, and T4 was normal. Doctor advised to get retested in a few months to see if TSH resolves to normal levels. I am wondering if this possibly could be the cause of my back-to-back -back miscarriages. Also, at what point is it advised to treat subclinical hypothyroidism prior during pregnancy? I am a healthy 29-year-old female with no other health conditions. However, my mom and aunt both are hypothyroid and have been on medication for years. Thank you so much in advance. I appreciate you taking the time to read and possibly answer this question. So hypothyroidism um, and subclinical hypothyroidism, which is uh, an abnormal, a slightly abnormal level, but not, not so much to push it into clear hypothyroidism. Um, I would say by the time you get to a level of, of 5 or 5.3, when we're looking at fertility, most of us really want you well beneath 2.5. And, and so for me, that would, that would be enough to, yes, you want to repeat it and make sure that it's not, not crazy. Um, but I would, I would still probably treat it. Now, the question is whether is this the cause of the miscarriage and that nobody's ever going to know. I, I usually don't see miscarriages caused by that subtle of a thyroid change. Most of the time that you're you're thinking about um, thyroid abnormalities causing miscarriages, you're thinking about TSHs that are like 10 or 15 or ridiculously mm -hmm. high, um, where five is five's high, but it's not out of the stratosphere high. I think it'd be helpful to get some TPO antibodies on her. Yeah. Um, because quite honestly, I mean, I'm assuming you had your thyroid checked at the beginning of your fertility care. And if it was normal and you jumped all the way to five, 
I would check TPO antibodies and I would probably put you on a low dose of thyroid medication. It's unlikely that you're not going to tolerate it well. And if it helps potentially improve your success rates, it's a pretty benign treatment mm-hmm. yeah. um, for for you know for a potential big win. Well, and I think the other thing too is, you know, we all can treat your thyroid and and primary care doctors can do it. But I I think, you know, this sounds like this is going to be something that probably is going to be a lifelong problem for you, given your mom's history and your sister's history. I really think it's probably time for you to find a general endocrinologist. And I know the general endocrinologists around here are really great about bird dogging the thyroid and our patients who are infertility patients. And, you know, they're really great about saying, you know, call me when you get pregnant, come right in, we'll start checking things. And they're really, um, real aggressive in trying to make sure that the thyroid is under good control. Um, So I I think it'd be a good idea to get in with a general endocrinologist just for now and also for long term. Good stuff. Good stuff. Y'all want to do another couple more? Sure. Yeah, let's throw in a couple more. All right. Hi, I love your podcast. I'm 33 and have been trying since fall of 2021. I've had two clinical miscarriages, one at eight weeks, one at 10 weeks, though the embryos only developed to about six weeks. The second embryo tested aneuploidy trisomy 16 maternal and mosaic trisomy 7 unknown origin. I've had a full RPL panel and nothing came back of note. My husband is 36, had 2% morphology, otherwise semen analysis was normal. AMH is... 3.89, 3.89, been working with a fertility clinic for four months, doing letrozole with HCG trigger and one IUI. Um, planning on to try without IVF for one more pregnancy, but now wondering how much time is too much. Finances are a factor for IVF. What are your thoughts? Thanks so much. So read again, she's had two pregnancies and lost one in eight weeks and 10 weeks. Is that right? And both eight. were genetically abnormal. Is that right? On the second one had two abnormalities. The first okay. one wasn't tested. Sure. Wasn't tested. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. So for cases like this, I mean, you already had the RPL panel. I'm assuming there are karyotypes in there along with all the rest of it. Um, you're getting pregnant. You're just not staying pregnant. And and there's a couple of ways that people approach this. So one option is just expectant management. When you get pregnant, your fertility clinic watches you. They give you supportive, usually progesterone because it's not going to hurt anything. Oftentimes, we'll give a baby aspirin, even though the data isn't really convincing that, oh, this makes a huge difference, um, and we see what happens. The advantage of that is it's cheaper. The disadvantage of that is that we don't know if you're going to likely get pregnant on the third miscarriage or the 12th miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And there are some patients who, by the time they come to us, they say, okay, I have given it a chance on my own, and we are not doing this anymore, and uh, what are you going to do to treat me? And so one option is to do inseminations like you've been doing. That has the primary advantage of being able to really time everything out and lead to pregnancy a little bit faster than you might otherwise get to it. But it doesn't necessarily offer a whole lot of additional advantages for preventing a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're going to make sure that your progesterone is high from the very beginning because you you have that luxury of timing the, the supplementation very well. Um, but it doesn't offer chromosomal testing that may be of an advantage. Then the last option is to do IVF. Now, this has the advantage of being able to do the PGTA and rule out some of those abnormalities from the very beginning, has the advantage of being able to separate getting the embryo and transferring the embryo. So sometimes there's an implantation issue. Usually by the time you get to six weeks, I'm less less concerned about that, but we'll take any advantage we can get. Um, and, and so sometimes people go for that because they're like, you know what, this may not prevent all miscarriages, 
but at least I'm not going to have an obvious miscarriage of one that we knew was never going to make it. And mm-hmm. if I don't have to go through that, I would be grateful for that. So that's a lot of the thinking about all of us, particularly when you have a negative set of RPL labs and you're just figuring out what to do without that information. Because 50% of RPL labs are going to be just totally fine and normal. And it's great to tell a patient she's normal. And a lot of times all she wants you to do is tell her how she's abnormal. Well, and I would say the important statistic, which I think we mentioned earlier, is 50% of pregnancies, even in women under 35, that they lose are genetically abnormal. So even though the first pregnancy wasn't tested, 50-50 chance that was a genetically abnormal pregnancy. And so unfortunately, like Carrie said, there's no way that you would know that. There's no way that you would know what month to have sex on to have the normal embryo versus the abnormal embryo. And so, you know, if it continues to happen, the advantage to IVF, even though we can't really say for sure that it's the embryo or it's your uterus is the problem, at least we know that we can give you better odds by testing the embryo and knowing that we're transferring a genetically normal embryo in your uterus. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. One more. Hi, I'm 33 and dealing with recurrent pregnancy loss. It's been five times now since September 2021. Wow. Yes. I've had two successful pregnancies in the past, um, age two and four, never had issues mm-hmm. conceiving or pregnancy or any other issues with those pregnancies. After the second miscarriage, I started seeing a fertility specialist, got every test in the book and everything is completely normal. The only abnormal test was my husband's morphology at 3%, but was told it was not a factor to our situation. This has been emotionally and mentally draining and I'm scared to continue trying. My doctors believe IVF could be a good option for us to try as we found out it's fully covered. Do you think this is a good route to take? Thanks. So she didn't mention this, but I assume that her husband or her partner was the same partner for all seven of her pregnancies, right? It sounds like. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So sometimes if it was a different partner, you might think, well, you know, the partner, the new partner brings, you know, to the table, a new set of chromosomes, and maybe there's some structural abnormality with the chromosome. Um, And by structural rearrangement, we mean that a piece of one chromosome um, breaks away, another piece of a chromosome breaks away during the very first cell division in you as a fetus switches places. And ultimately, all the cells going forward can be have some sort of rearrangement. And so that if you went to make eggs or your partner went to make sperm, there may be too few or too many chromosomes. It's not likely that you would have two children. In fact, I don't think I've ever had a patient that's had two children. And then we went on to find that that person had that abnormal chromosome makeup. I've definitely seen patients that have had one child and then had recurrent miscarriage after that. Um, And I think, did she say that they had checked her karyotype, that she had a normal workup or not? She said that they had a normal workup, not specifically what was in the workup. Okay. So probably they checked your chromosomes. So um, yeah, this is a situation where it's just really hard to know what the problem is. It's really, I know it's really frustrating for you. You're young. You've had two, you have two young children. You've recently been pregnant. Um, I do think IVF could be really helpful because at least it would give you some information about the genetics of the embryo. Wouldn't tell us about anything about implantation and Certainly, I think um, if your doctor has not already, hysteroscopy would be really beneficial mm-hmm. to look at your cavity, yeah. take some biopsies, make sure there's not something going on there. Um, and then ultimately, IVF would be a good good option for you, I think. Another thing to think about is it really sounds like you're emotionally exhausted and you, you really need to take care of your mental health and emotional health just as Absolutely. much as your physical health. Going through miscarriages is a loss in every way, shape, or form. It's like losing a job or a family member. 
it you are going to go through the grieving process and it is going to it's going to take wear and tear on you it's going to take wear and tear on your partner and not necessarily the same wear and tear which in itself can be challenging mm-hmm. um but sometimes getting some extra reinforcements whether it's a counselor a religious figure a friend but having somebody that you can you can talk to and really share those feelings and kind of go going through that grieving process um we we understand we we are there with you we are here to help you through that journey but but make sure that your your head and your heart are just as healthy as the rest of you good point after five miscarriages you know who who wouldn't be sad and depressed and having a lot of issues with that so yeah definitely that's a great great piece of advice yeah all right all right well to our audience thanks for listening and tune in next week for more also be sure to subscribe and leave a review for us an apple podcast we'd really love to hear from you we're also on instagram and facebook and youtube be sure to follow and subscribe to stay updated on all things infertility you can also visit fertilitydocsandcensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility all questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our ask the doc segment so don't hold back we love to hear episode ideas so let us know what you're thinking and want to hear and as always this podcast is intended for entertainment and it's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician all right we'll talk to you soon Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.